I started asking the patient if this loved one ever communicates with him from you know, the other world into this world. And right as I asked that question, a buzzer fell off of my door. We can interpret this in any way, right? But the fact that that happened, it was a very interesting temporal correlation or a synchronicity, a meaningful coincidence. And that meaningful coincidence was very powerful for my patient who was really stuck in grief and it enabled him to move past that. Welcome to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Fiveson. And today we have a truly remarkable guest joining us, Dr. Anna Yusum. Dr. Yusum is an internationally recognized, award-winning, board-certified, Stanford and Yale-educated, mind-body-spirit concierge, psychiatrist, and executive coach. With private practices in New York, California, Connecticut, and California, uh, and Florida, sorry, she's helped countless individuals achieve more significant impact, purpose, and joy in their lives and their work. Let's dive into our conversation with Dr. Anna Yusum. Hello, Anna. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here with us today. And uh, how's it going? Hi, Keith. It's going great. It's such a pleasure to be here with you again today as well. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, you're welcome. And uh, I know you and I have crossed paths at uh, various uh, industry conferences and i've seen we're connected on linkedin and uh we've we've had you on the show before and uh it's a very interesting uh story and a really incredible background that you have can you share a little bit about your journey from neurobiology as a researcher to a psychiatrist focusing on spirituality and mental health Sure, yes. So I was um, trained as a traditional psychiatrist. I went to Stanford for my undergrad, studied biology and philosophy. I worked in the neurobiology lab with Dr. Robert Sapolsky there for a few years, then um, went to Yale Medical School, took a little time in between to be a management consultant. Um, and then I started doing my psychiatry residency training only to be faced with some unexpected things happening in my life hmm. that led me to question how the world works. And it was exciting, it was interesting, um, and it was in part certain things that were painful in my own life, the ending of a relationship, hmm. and also not feeling very at home in the residency program that I was in. Mm -hmm. And also it was things happening with my patients interesting mm. and unusual things that I couldn't really explain. Mm. So I go into depth um, in my book about some of them. But for instance, one of my patients um, had a dream about something that was happening in my life. And this mm. patient had no way of knowing that this was happening. Nobody knew. And yet this patient was exactly accurate. And so mm. it made me think, how in the world did mm. he have this really interesting dream? Mm. Um, that was one such thing. And then mm. I had, yeah, other things. I had um, a patient who- So wait, wait, let me go back. The patient yeah. had a dream about, about something, but it was happening in your life, right? Or was it about you? 
it was something happening in my life and it was it was a very very interesting thing it was seemingly a little thing but the patient picked up on it so um at the time i'll actually tell you what it was it was a very little like incidental thing but um so at the time i was thinking about getting some hair extensions and i remember the day prior to this patient having this dream i tried on a few different kinds of hair extensions and then i found these curly hair extensions that i really liked and i was like these are the ones that like i think that day or the day after a patient comes to me and has a dream of me with very long flowing curly like bouncy hair Wow. Like literally that perfectly corresponds in time with my trying on these hair extensions, right? Something so seemingly small, but I was like, that's so interesting. And of course there's no way this patient could have known <laughs> that this was happening, you know, in the comfort of my own home. So it was little things like that, little synchronicities. Hmm. Um and there were other things. Hmm. I had a patient who had lost a loved one. Mm-hmm. and we were talking about that loved one it was very very hard for my patient mm-hmm. to move forward beyond this and um i started asking the patient if this loved one ever communicates with him from you know the other world mm-hmm. into this world mm-hmm. and right as i asked that question a buzzer fell off of my door and mm-hmm. you know things fall all the time mm-hmm. however that particular buzzer which i used to let patients into my office mm-hmm. had never fallen prior and never fell again so, so the fact like that a that sign was that a sign is that what you're saying that's yeah. the thing we can interpret this in any way right but the fact that that happened it was a very interesting temporal correlation or a synchronicity a meaningful coincidence right. Right. and that meaningful coincidence was very powerful for my patient mm-hmm. who was really stuck in grief and it enabled him to move past that and move beyond that. Wow. So these kinds wow. of little synchronicities start happening on a regular basis in my life mm-hmm. and started leading me to think, huh, very interesting. What is the meaning of this? Maybe the world works a little bit differently than I'd always been taught. Mm-hmm. And so that was the beginning of how spirituality entered my life. Mm. Well, you know, it's uh it's fascinating because one of the things I I I come to know as I get older and more and more so you and you've heard it is the more you know the less you know and uh you know it's it's very uh clear that you know we we there's a, a lot that we don't know beyond the physical realm you know and even in the physical realm there's probably not so much that we can really control or we can really manage or we really know let me ask you you wrote this book uh your book fulfilled and I uh, looked at it, and I, it's really resonated with a lot of readers worldwide. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the science of spirituality and, in your view, how it can enhance our well-being? Because it sounds like there's a, a real good correlation here between how it starts to link up. And, you know, maybe it's, uh, I won't say it's woo-woo, I think it's much more around, uh, you know, inspiration, actualization kind of things in our lives. What are your thoughts about yeah. that and how does it how does it link up? Absolutely. You know, when I was doing my residency, I was mm-hmm. taught about the biopsychosocial model mm-hmm. of the human mind. So that is that the human mind has forces acting on it that are biological, psychological and social. The biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. So now we are expanding that model and certainly people are coming forth 
to make it the biopsychosocial spiritual model. Hmm. This understanding that there are spiritual forces acting on us that are crucial to our being whole and that could contribute in the same way that biological, psychological, and social forces do hmm. to our well-being as well as to the difficulties in our life. And so mm -hmm. this is what my book is about, and it's mm -hmm. about how people can connect to spirituality, which I define as a connection to something greater than oneself. Mm -hmm. It's a much more intricate definition, but that's a definition that most people can relate to. Mm -hmm. And by that, for some people, that's God. For some people, that's the universe. For mm -hmm. some people, it's a collective consciousness. For some people, it's a set of collective values like hope, mm -hmm. love, trust, perseverance. Mm -hmm. And by that definition, spirituality does not, you know, belief in God is not a necessary mm -hmm. prerequisite for spirituality. And one need not be religious per se mm -hmm. in order to be spiritual. Mm -hmm. And by that definition, many atheists mm -hmm. can be perfectly spiritual if they are in flow with life and connected to something greater than themselves, mm -hmm. such as these collective values that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I'm, gl I'm glad you talked about that because uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, I talk about a lot is, uh, you know, the Joseph Campbell uh, definition between spirituality and the meal or the meal and spirituality. Well, it goes religion and spirituality. So, you know, he says religion is the menu and spirituality is the meal uh, is, yeah. you know, the way you digest it. But I also like the word, the root word for breath in Latin is spear as in breath, you know, spear it as an in inspire, as in respire, as an aspire. So you're really talking about something that really is what gives you life, what gives you breath, what gives you the capability to kind of move on and persist in some way, which is very different or similar, but not the same as religion, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And my favorite definition of spirituality, if we're going to be taking a more Please. you know, holistic definition, right. is actually from Dr. Christopher Cook, a British professor of religion and theology. And that's that spirituality is this universal dimension of human experience. It could mm. be intimately inner, imminent and personal, or wholly transcendent and beyond mm. the self. Mm. But whatever it is, it's experienced as being of fundamental importance and concerned with purpose in life, with truth and values. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting uh, because it, it seems in reading your bio, you've really taken this uh, even further as a clinical assistant professor at Yale Medical School, and you are creating a mental health and spirituality center. What inspired that initiative and what impact do you hope it'll have? And, and where is it at? I, I know we had started to talk about that when we had you on the show, and I think that was a little over a year ago, but uh, wh wh what's happening with that? Yeah, so it is moving forward um, and we have the first few research projects mm -hmm. underway for that. We have collaborators throughout and outside of Yale. Um, we're actually meeting with the Divinity School faculty, um, the psychiatry faculty are meeting in order to create the foundation on um, the 2nd of April. So this is very Beautiful. exciting. So wow. Yale has been very supportive. Well, just, and in time, been, just in time for spring, right? Just in time for spring, exactly. Right. And it's been, you know, a slow process because, you know, this is something quite novel and this is something a little bit experimental. And mm -hmm. so to get people on board, to get people excited, that it's taken some time. And, mm -hmm. you know, for me, this is one of my passion projects, one of my life projects. Whatever time it takes, I'm more than happy to usher it and shepherd it into the world. And it's been a true joy to um, be able to do. And I'm happy to tell you about the research. I'm happy to tell you about more. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm, I'm very interested to hear more uh, for sure. Um, let me ask you within the center, because it is a spirituality center, uh, your work really uh, is expansive. I mean, it's very diverse. You're looking at everything from the Kabbalah to Buddhist meditation. How have these experiences shaped your approach and what actually might we expect with any of those experiences, if any, at the spirituality center? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, at the Spirituality Center, we are focused on the human experience of spirituality. So how all of these different things that you mentioned, as well as any other cultural, religious, or spiritual tradition, be it more a religious spirituality Mm -hmm. or secular spirituality. And by secular spirituality, I mean yoga, meditation, prayer, journaling, personal prayer. Um, However that impacts the human being and his or her well-being, that is what we are going to be studying, Mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. And so we have a number of different projects, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of data already that our projects are going to be building upon. But the projects show that whether it be a religious spirituality or a secular spirituality, that there are improvements significantly in quality of life, Mm -hmm. in duration of life, Mm -hmm. in overall well-being and also in recovery from various illnesses including Mm. heart disease including cancer including mental health issues including depression including addiction and the two places actually Mm -hmm. in medicine where a spiritually based model is actually already the medical standard of care is within addiction treatment and end-of-life care Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i start looking at you know um the idea of spirituality and mental health and physical uh, restoration. Uh, And I'm wondering, you know, uh, for a lot of folks that might be on the science side, not the sacred or the spiritual side, can you sort of uh, give your perspective as to why or what role spirituality plays? Because I do know that, you know, uh, even bedside manner when, you know, the doctor or the nurse come over and ask you how you're doing and have a conversation with you, the outcomes are significantly better than if somebody just treats you like, you know, you were just a a cog in the wheel, if you will. Why is that? And what do you think happens to the body or the brain or the biopsychosocial spiritual model? How does it, how does that, how does that work? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that ultimately it's a physician, a doctor, a therapist, et cetera, really trying to understand the whole Mm -hmm. person and not just the disease and actually seeing the person as whole and not just as their isolated symptoms. And so for some people who are not particularly spiritual and would not define themselves as such, asking questions about spirituality and taking a spiritual history probably wouldn't really Mm -hmm. make much of a difference. Might even upset them for that matter. It might even upset them. They're like, who are you? Who are you? Like, yeah, stay in your lane. Treat me as you should. You're my doctor. Ask me questions about my medical symptoms. And, you know, you meet the patient where they're at Mm -hmm. and that's fine too. And, or, or the client or whoever it is that you're working with. Mm -hmm. And, but there is a lot of data showing that many patients, especially patients with terminal illness, with cancer diagnoses, et cetera, would really, really prefer for the doctor to ask about their spiritual beliefs, mm-hmm. about life, love, and the world, and mm-hmm. their beliefs about healing, about death, about illness. Mm-hmm. And very rarely are they actually asked. So mm-hmm. high, mm-hmm. especially among people in dire straits, high desire for that 
and actually low execution on part of physicians. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the gap is. So one of our things is to really help doctors, physicians, therapists meet the patients where they're at and to mm -hmm. see spirituality as a part of you know, the whole person. Mm -hmm. And right. you know, you asked what happens in the body, the same thing that happens when you feel understood by another human being in any mm -hmm. other way, that right. your cortisol goes down, you feel more in coherence and you just feel more trust and are able to open up and receive the healing mm -hmm. that you are there to receive. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, I, I don't know if you know a little bit about my background, but you know, I'm a two-time cancer survivor. And uh, you know, one of the things that I uh, really attribute to the doctor was, you know, he did this whole visualization exercise with me, which was, you know, sort of imagine a Pac-Man, you know, in the the good guys going after the bad guys or the red blood cells going after all the white blood cells. And there's something about going into this visualization or the sort of simulation uh, tank, you know, that really, um, I think really helps. And there's some inspiration around that. To your point, the cortisol drops, you know, the serotonin, the endorphins, all the good stuff, the oxytocin, because you feel seen, heard and recognized. You think that's part of the contribution there, or it's maybe even more esoteric or more ephemeral? Yeah, and I think it's it's probably a combination of both. And I love that. I think it's all of those things mm -hmm. at the level of the body, that mm -hmm. when you're able to have spiritual engagement, that the body reacts in turn. And mm -hmm. you know, there's actually a lot of data on what is the relationship with spirituality that is most effective? So one, it's been found that actually, if you believe in a higher power, it's a collaborative relationship with the higher power that is found to be more powerful and effective for one's healing than mm. believing that God's gonna solve all your problems. Mm. On the other hand, there's also something very powerful in the very active surrender. And sometimes people reach the end of the line. And for to be able to surrender and to open up to that new level when there is no other steps that you could take is also incredibly powerful. And it's from that place that miracles take place. So oh, it's that's, very, very interesting. Now that's beautiful here. I, I love that. I love the, you know, the 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 concept of all that, you know, and like surrendering, right? Surrendering for a lot of folks is like we've got to fight this cancer. We've got to fight it. We we can't we can't just let it take over. But that's yeah. not really what you're talking about. You're really yeah. talking about uh, to me. It's sort of like Brene Brown's idea around uh, you know vulnerability and authenticity and being real and being you know intimate, being allowing someone to see into you, to your fears, your uncertainties, your doubts and uh, really then sit with you and forge uh, a, an alliance, maybe if it's not with someone else, with your higher power. I'm wondering, how do you develop that? How can individuals cultivate that? Is it especially, you know, I mean, first of all, do you think I'm right in terms of the, the guide, the, 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 what I just said, you know, the perspective around vulnerability and, and surrender? And, and then how do people cultivate that? What, yeah, what, what, I, I think uh, it's such a beautiful point. I think how do they I, get real? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And yes, I think that your point about that is so well taken. Mm. That when you're able to open your heart and let things in, and essentially become vulnerable with yourself and with others, things are able to move and flow more in your life. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you do that? The way that you do that is you remove the obstacles to vulnerability. 
and what are the obstacles, right? In Kabbalah, they would call it all of the manifestations of the so-called ego, hatred, anger, jealousy, remorse, contempt, anger, control. Yes, I said anger twice. So things like that. Now, how do you work on that? What do you do? And for different people, it's different things that you do in order to, for, for instance, remove anger or contempt or really start to cultivate forgiveness for people who you feel or circumstances even where you have felt wrong. And that could be your parents for a difficult childhood or mm -hmm. God for put, you know, subjecting you to a certain situation right. or somebody who actually harmed you in your life or a bad boss or a friend who betrayed you or an ex-lover who, you know, left you or whatever that is, right. right? I think all of us at our core are actually loving, beautiful people mm -hmm. and it's removing the obstacles to that that mm -hmm. enables you to get in, into the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And there's many exercises that one can do. And actually I talk a lot about them in my book but I also want to say that there's many things. For some people, it's reading Bible verses. For some people, it's meditation. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's going to a Joe Dispenza retreat and getting into heart coherence. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it's going and confronting people and ensuring that you know your voice is heard and then you're mm -hmm. able to set your boundaries and forgive and move on. Mm -hmm. So I, what I hear in that is this whole idea of uh, you know being able to go back and touch on the pain, the hurt, whatever it might be, the it might be implicit, it might be explicit, the acceptance of, you know, some sort of a terrible disease, whatever it might be, and then really accept that and then move into a, a, a state of love and compassion and care and kind of moving that forward. I'm wondering, you've worked with a lot of Forbes 500 CEOs, Olympic athletes, and, and some A-list actors as well. You know, when I'm looking at all those things and we're starting to talk about vulnerability and, you know, being able to go into the story, how do you, you know, how do you work with them in terms of, you know, is it the same process? Is it a little different in terms of helping them to pursue their uh, process or their joy in their lives to kind of move on? Yeah. Every single person with whom I work has been unique and different. And for everybody, there's been a uniquely tailored approach, but there's definitely similarities. Mm -hmm. Many people with whom I work have had addictions and addictions come in many forms. Mm -hmm. Drug and alcohol addiction, the most common, behavioral addictions, and that includes sex addiction, workaholism, addiction to your iPhone. Mm -hmm. And then there's addictions that are often less thought of as addictions, but are just as addictive. So psychological addictions mm -hmm. to money, power, status, achievement, etc. Mm -hmm. All of those things are good in moderation or sometimes even in, in excess, but it becomes an addiction when the more of it you have, the emptier you feel. And if the more of it you have, the emptier you feel. Is that what correct. you said? Correct. Oh, That's okay. when good. these psychological things, which could be good in moderation, become mm -hmm. addiction. So the whole idea of harm reduction, because I'm, you know, I'm also a KSAC and a CARC and I work with individuals to as a credentialed alcohol and substance abuse counselor and work with individuals on recovery. But what you're saying is, and I like that a lot, is, is, is when you're not able to do, if you're, when you're not able to be the person you really want to be in your life, then you might look at it and say, hey, something's going on here i'm misusing and this isn't 
what I want to be doing in my life, or there's just not a ability to manage the relationships you might have had before. Is that is that on point, or would you add some additional areas? Absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes people are very aware that mm-hmm. this is, you know, something that's out of control. Sometimes it's their significant other or spouse that mm-hmm. will shed light on this is really an issue mm-hmm. and we're unable to connect because this person is preoccupied with this. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you know, we talked about drug and alcohol, behavioral addictions, mm-hmm. psychological addictions. Another form of a so-called psychological addiction mm-hmm. is our addiction to certain emotions, mm-hmm. such as mm-hmm. anger. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some people who are addicted to anger or drama oh, yeah. addictions, mm-hmm. you know? Drama. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, drama addiction. And what happens is you're going to then create situations that are so drama-filled or that spur your anger mm-hmm. unless you recognize what's happening and are able right. to get to the root of that and release it. Right. And well, for work. for many years, you know, I uh, I wrote my book, uh, you know, The Mindfulness Experience, and we I want to talk about mindfulness as well. But we talked about, I talk about, you know, being raised in a dysfunctional household and my mom died at 52 uh, from misuse of alcohol, right? So there is a lot of that ACOA, uh, you know, uh, looking at codependence, looking at ways of just sort of learning how to take care of other people's needs without necessarily taking care of mine. And uh, I did find that there were some things uh, for myself personally, uh, like just drama addiction, you know, like, okay, turning on the news, hey, 24-7 news cycle. Let me go ahead and swipe my phone left, swipe it right, see what see what else is going to go ahead and drive those you know, those, um, those uh, oxytocin levels up so that, not the oxytocin, the cortisol levels up so that I'm feeling freaked out. Is, is that what you're talking about? Absolutely, absolutely right. It's like, it's so imprinted at such an early age mm-hmm. and it's what's comfortable and familiar. Right. And unless we recognize that and then give ourselves the freedom of choice to recognize that life could be otherwise and we can make different choices to mm-hmm. enable that, we're going to reproduce the same choice. It's our baseline. It's our default pathway. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so then you're going to find things that create that drama, that create that trauma, that mm-hmm. create things that are going to anger you that then you have to yell at other people for. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, part of that whole addiction cycle, but it's a little bit more um, subliminal, subconscious, less difficult to recognize than ordinary addiction, but it's still in the same family. So how do you, so how do you, uh, I'm interested in your perspective. I have a perspective around this. How do you uh, uh, help people uh, get the recognition and then make the different choices? What's your, what's your pathway to that? Definitely. Um, I have a number of different pathways, but I think one of the key ones is making the unconscious conscious Mm -hmm. and thereby giving people more control over their, you know, experience. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people who are doing this, Some people come aware, but a lot of people don't come fully aware, even brilliant, amazing people. And they're Mm -hmm. like, I have all this going for me. And yet I keep experiencing this thing over and over and over. They'll keep falling down the same hole. I walk down the same street and I can't stop that, right? Exactly, exactly. And then you meet them where they're at and you're like, okay, so let's think about this. Where could this be coming from? And then you look Mm -hmm. at their past and try to understand where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And then you give them different, you know, action-oriented steps that they could take. And then things come up in the relationship with you that you worked through and give them a different way to resolve 
the things within you and the transference, working in the transference, they mm -hmm. call it. Mm -hmm. And that also starts to paint a new picture. Sometimes mm -hmm. these things happen quickly and we have certain tools like psychedelics that can speed up this work. Sometimes mm -hmm. it happens very slowly over time, over years in the course of therapy. But mm -hmm. the most important thing is that it's happening. Right. And that, and certainly a sense of um, the story and the narrative. And, you know, I call it the big tsunami, you know, the sense that there's a tsunami coming over the ridge and you've got a, you know, you've got a flight, fight, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. You've got to go ahead and jump into whatever your behavior is so that you can go ahead and deal with whatever that tsunami is. But you're backing it up and you're really kind of saying, OK, let's look at the triggers. Let's look at what it is that's driving that and then using um i i assume you're using asking them to breathe breathing exercises meditation psychedelics uh and uh, i i do want to unpack the psychedelics area um yeah so uh let me ask you when you start looking at psychedelics you know they've gained a lot of attention and i know uh, there's a lot of potential therapeutic benefits how do you view their role in the mental health treatment process that you currently uh, deploy. Yeah, I think psychedelics are an incredibly powerful treatment and they're, you know, the legal psychedelic presently is ketamine where mm -hmm. I am licensed and then psilocybin now has become legal in certain states and will be legal in more states soon. MDMA hopefully this year will soon be legal as well. And I think that not only do psychedelics offer a novel neurobiological and biological mm -hmm. pathway to treatment which many people who, for instance, don't respond to traditional antidepressants or traditional medications, they will respond to psychedelics. So that's very powerful. So from a biological and neurobiological perspective, it increases the number of people responding to the medications that we have. But in addition to that, what psychedelics offer, which no other medications do, is a connection to spirit, hmm. mystical experiences for some people, not for everybody, but those are also noted. And that in and of itself can be a very powerful healing force. So you mentioned in your answer to, you know, when we were discussing the last thing, Keith, about our narratives as human oh, yeah. beings, right? Ultimately, we as human beings, I believe, are narratologists. We're mm. constantly writing and rewriting our narratives. Narratologists, I've got to remember that. Mm -hmm. Narratologist, yeah. I love that word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Narratologist, I love that. Yeah. I'm a narratologist. Yeah, yeah. Right. right, right. We're releasing the narratives that no longer serve us and bringing yep. in the narratives that are more constructive and do serve us. So we constantly are upgrading our narratives. And that is narratives around who we are, about our past, about our identity, about who we are in this world, about how we um, relate to others and to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And as we upgrade those narratives, our lives begin to change as well. Mm -hmm. What happens inside of us ultimately reflects outside of us. Mm -hmm. So it's that change your story, change your life. And a lot of people hear that and a lot of people know it. But I think what I hear you saying even more so is that there are a lot of, you know, ripples and cracks in the road that need to be, you need to go back and take a look at where you came from in hindsight, you know, where have I been? Where am I now? Where do I want to be? You can't go where you want to be if you're still holding on to where you were. So it's that question of the the reboot, reset, reframe, 
and then you know moving forward that I hear you talking about and Absolutely. the narrow na, 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 say that word again narratologist <laughs> yeah. narratologist yes I love that that's just so great mm-hmm. oh my goodness wow what's the most profound uh, insight that you've gained uh, let me ask you another thing about your bio um, you're one of the few people that I know I've been the 50 countries you've been to 70 countries and uh mm-hmm. i i think that's absolutely wonderful and i'm wondering uh you know with all of your uh, travels and all of your meeting with different people and different cultures and you know different economic stratas uh what is the most profound insight that you think and i'm putting you on a spot here uh but what's what's one of the most profound insights you think you've gained uh in all your travels and your work looking at the human psyche, the biopsychosocial and spiritual model. Yeah, I feel that really there's no two people who live in the same world. We are all so unique and different. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, what like we can never project, we could never really understand what is happening in the mind and heart of another unless we truly get to know the person. So not to make assumptions, always give people the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. and to really listen and to listen with curiosity, with openness, with um, non-judgmentalness to truly mm. understand. Mm. Mm. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful, um, thoughtful um, answer to the question. I was going to say, uh, and when I'm asked this question, you know, we all want to be seen, heard, recognized. We want someone to love us and someone to love. You know, that's sort of the common, the, the, the common quality of everyone around the world, you know, and food, shelter, clothing, someone to, someone to love us, someone to uh, love. And, uh, you know, I think you're, what you're saying is even deeper because it really goes into the fact that all of us are living very complex lives and we don't know on the surface what's going on, you know, what, what happened before or what might happen afterwards. So just be present for the individual, meet them wherever they are. Is that yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And to recognize that people, no matter who you are, no matter what things appear, everyone's going through something. Everyone is fighting a battle. Everyone is, not at every moment, but like in life. Life right. is just like that. And right. so also to have compassion, empathy for people. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is really to master forgiveness, not for anybody else, but for yourself. If you can become a master in the art of forgiveness, you're going to have a really good life. Mm. So, you know, I, I think you've you've really positioned yourself as sort of, you know, uh, standing on the intersection of the spirituality and science and an understanding of human nature uh, within that, the context and the underpinning of what really makes people tick in a very big way. I'm wondering, how do you, how do you personally balance the rational world of science with the woo-woo topics of, you know, things like tele- telepathy and manifestation, because a lot of those, you know, you talked about that a little earlier in terms of what you were going through and then manifestation in terms of the whole idea of, you know, just, you know, me talking about us talking about visualizing and being in a, you know, a, in, in a, a simulator. So how do you, how do you, how do you balance those? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's one of my like 
purposes in this world is to bridge that gap between science and spirituality, is to put the science to spirituality. Mm -hmm. the, the questions that you're asking, what does manifestation entail at the biochemical level, the neurobiological level, the psychological level? What is it that we as human beings can do to increase the likelihood of mm -hmm. manifesting what we most deeply want? And what is it that we human beings are doing to actually manifest what we don't want and to keep repeating that, right? So these are questions and I sometimes will use woo language such as manifestation that doesn't necessarily have a place in the scientific literature, but mm -hmm. I also feel like I'm the translator between those worlds, right? The kind of new age spirituality and also the world of science and research and trying to figure out where um, things meet and how we as human beings just live this life and this world. I don't think the answer lies in one or the other. I think the answer is in the combination of the two. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there's any question that should or could be answered purely spiritually and any question that could be answered purely biologically or scientifically. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is what Sigmund Freud and uh, Carl Jung were saying. You know, Sigmund Freud was saying mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. religious religion is um, and obsessional neuroses, the people who need to believe are weak because they have this crutch God or the universe. Mm -hmm. And Carl Jung was saying that actually, no, religious, religion and your spiritual life are a core part of the wholeness of a human being. And then it was Einstein who best reconciled the psychotomy and mm -hmm. saying mm -hmm. that religion without science is blind and science without religion is death. And so you need both. Hmm. What a beautiful answer. What a what a really complete answer. And I'm wondering, uh, in terms of sharpening uh, our ability to kind of tune into those things, whether or not it's manifestation, whether or not it's telepathy, you know, our intuition, I think, to a large extent, um, what advice do you have for people who are looking to increase that area of their lives you know whether or not it's to self or whether or not it's to others it's you know is it just about presencing or is it more than that yeah i think that um you know there's spirituality mm -hmm. and then there's spiritual health mm. right and spiritual health i really like the definition of spiritual health and that's people who when life confronts you with challenges, you're able to have an appropriate, good, and wise response. Mm. You're able to feel your feelings. You're able to be able to have enough presence to move forward with um, a plan, etc. You're able to break down if you need to break down, but then also reconstitute yourself and move forward. Mm. You know, so um, I think you know one of the questions you're asking is how do we have people have more spiritual health and right. I think it's um, as similar to my answer before it's removing the obstacles to spiritual health and that mm -hmm. could be emotional ability that could mm -hmm. be um, lack of resiliency lack of training as to how to overcome hardships or obstacles mm -hmm. um, lack of uh, sometimes a support system lack of a psychological structure or even spiritual explanation for why these things happen. I think mm. often all of those things are needed for spiritual health. And so one of our one of the things at the center that I'm starting and also that I work on with my clients and patients is to help people cultivate spiritual health. Mm. Mm. So, you know, what I'm what I'm reading into that is the who, what, where, when, how and why questions, you know, the big questions. You know, and those consistently change. It's not like, you know, the world's turning around, we're consistently changing, nothing's 
really you know static or, or stagnant you know uh, unless you get caught up or hung up with uh, some story or narrative that you've talked about before and and what I'm really hearing is that if you can ask those questions you know who am I now what do I want where am I going what happened you know how can I accept myself sort of like do an in-depth inquiry it's really the contemplative aspect of you know not 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 where you've been but you know accepting that but really being in touch with where you are and what the potential or the opportunity is going forward is you know is, is that is, am i hearing that right or is absolutely. there some absolutely yes right. absolutely yeah and right. i think you know with what you're saying also just about accepting life on life's terms and, mm. and no matter where you want to go first accepting where you are and accepting yeah. what is in your life and from that place making your plan from that yeah. place moving forward yeah, well, the old, uh, you know, from a coaching viewpoint, working with clients, uh, one of the things that I work with a lot are clients that are saying they want to change, right? And change requires commitment, and the nature of commitment is challenge. So really understanding what those challenges are, I think, is very important uh, because you can't really change unless you accept your story or the narrative or what it is that you think is, you know, the problem right and then like accept the problem you know the first part of as they say the first part of recovery is accepting you know that you've got a problem you know so it's that it's that it's that element and i i like that so let, let me ask you lastly um uh certainly not lastly but in your opinion what does it mean to have a soul yeah that's a great question and it's a question i got really interested in because mm -hmm. you know in a way a psychiatrist psyche could be interpreted as mind or soul in the german language and so i always thought myself as a doctor of soul mm -hmm. but the term soul was never really mentioned in any of my studies at stanford or yale or in my residency and so i like i said where what happened to the soul and so i started studying and i traveled around the world to really ask the question that's where a lot of my travels came from mm -hmm. What is the soul and how do people relate to the soul as it pertains to healing? Mm -hmm. And my favorite definition of soul came from a Mexican shaman that I met, mm. Fernando Broca. And he said that the soul is comprised of two parts. The first part is that which connects us to everybody and everything. Mm -hmm. And people sometimes say we're one unified soul and that's what they mean. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of the soul is that which encapsulates your own uniqueness, your unique talents, abilities, mm. um, your the contributions that you could make, the challenges that you have, you know, mm -hmm. in this world. So the soul is this two-part type thing, your uniqueness as well as your interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's 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 wonderful. And and uh, I've I haven't heard that uh, interpretation before. One of the interpretations I've had is there's always a struggle between the spirit and the soul. The soul sort of wants to ground itself into. Uh, the past, you know, the who I am, it wants to go deep, you know, it wants yes. to go deep in relationships, it wants to go deep in terms of yes. history and family and so on and so forth. Whereas the spirit wants to fly, wants to, you know, go off somewhere. And the thing is, is that the spirit really can't go off somewhere unless it's connected to the soul. So, you know, the soul can the soul can ground the spirit and the spirit can fly off. But there's always that conflict, you know, of 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 who I am, where what do I do with my life rather than, 
where I am now, what have I got, what uh, is holding me, you know, where I am and can I move forward one way. So they really kind of work in unison in some way, was what I hear you saying. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. Absolutely. That's great. So lastly, um, I'm wondering what your message would be to our listeners today as we start to, you know, wind up and go towards the uh, end of our time together on the mindfulness experience. Uh, and, uh, you know, what would you like if you were going to leave one idea or one concept at the end here uh, for folks uh, that they might sort of unpack, you know, what would that yeah. seed, what would that seed be? Yeah, exactly. To always ask yourself, what's the best that you can imagine for your life or for any given situation you're in? And then if you imagine that, say, can you imagine even better? So keep upgrading your vision for your life and tap into that every day because what we put on our attention on begins to grow. So we want to put our attention on the things that are positive, compelling, that we want to create, manifest, you know, uh, actualize the goals that we want to meet and not the things that we are worried about or the past things that have traumatized us, etc. So that would be my number one uh, piece of advice to our listeners. And I wish everybody the best. Wonderful, wonderful. So focus in on what's the best I can have in my life, really look at that and then like go back to it and say, okay, great, uh, I, I'm, I'm with that and how can we go ahead and make that either happen or make it even better, right? Exactly. exactly. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Uh, how do people get a hold of you, uh, Anna? Sure, they can go to my website. It's AnnaYusim.com, A-N-N-A-Y-U-S-I-M as in Mary.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Dr. Anna Yusum, for sharing your wisdom and your insights. To our listeners, remember to check out Dr. Yusum's book, Fulfilled, and explore her workshops to enhance your own mindfulness journey. Stay tuned for more enlightening conversations on the Mindfulness Experience podcast. And until next time, be present, be mindful, and live fulfilled.